2: You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 57 is Richard Amp, i.e. Richard F. Walker, leader of the band Amp. They are a London space rock band, active since 1992. They've released 17 albums, plus he's released four more albums as Amp Studio and another as Richard Amp. His main longtime collaborator has been vocalist Karin Sharf. You're right now listening to part of Transmission, an album-long piece, released in 2005. We're going to be discussing Just Get It, Why Don't You, from the brand new Q-Factors, a mixtape. Then Les Hommes sur la Lune, also from that album. Then looking back to the song Tomorrow, from the album Steneret, 1998. And we'll conclude by listening to Level Devil, from the album US, 2005. For more information, please check out AmpBass.net. For more information on this podcast, look to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. If you enjoy what we're doing here, please consider a contribution at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will have played a little bit of Transmission. It's a very slow burn, like many of your songs.
1: Yeah. It's the way it goes often with me. I like the atmospheric yeah. stuff. I know you've categorized your
2: music as ambient. I mean, I, I think of Brian Eno's music for airports, that kind of, it might be ambient, but it's certainly not background music. Like it gets seething. Like I, I was thinking a lot of that kind of thing to accompany some sort of meditative experience or maybe put it in a documentary about volcanoes or something.
1: Yeah. I can see that. There's definitely stuff like that goes on. I don't like to categorize myself. I'm interested in atmospheres, and atmospheres go from minimal quiet to very aggressive middle of chaos. They're all atmospheres to me, so I don't sort of see the difference.
2: Well, and you talked about on your website... Having a balance between the sound of the song and the song itself. So unlike transmission, which is not in any sense a song. It's just, you know, a very long piece. This first song that we're going to listen to, just get it parentheses. Why don't you from the Q factors a mixtape 2017 is definitely a song, but the vocal is sitting up front and it's very much still a song like thing arising out of this atmospheric approach.
1: Yeah. That's classic amp. And the sort of transmissions thing is like um, an experiment in pure atmospheric drone-based music. So we did something called Perception a few years earlier, and Transmissions was a, um, a follow-up record in the same vein as the Perception record. Mm-hmm. That's how it came about. But the main body of Amp's material, an Amp album classically, would have tracks that are like that, but also song-based tracks that mix it up. But nothing ever strays towards conventional song structures beyond the sort of basic folk structures that I kind of like.
2: Well, so say something specifically about Q Factors, the fact that it's a mixtape, that it's a collection of things from previous years that have been reworked, but they're not things that appeared on other albums, right?
1: That's right, yeah okay ideas and elements bits of samples maybe you've come in from the stuff done before so on one track just use the same words that we used in something else but we basically they were fashioned as new tracks distinct from themselves the idea of the album initially was we had a t-shirt once we sold at gigs that we had the word sample it on it because we like sampling but we always sampled ourselves i always like the idea of self-sampling so all the sort of sounds i record like field recording sounds or bits of music i've created and then chop it up and grab bits of it to make loops and things so basically q factor started off like that and it's going to be called samplet and we sort of basically scavenged bits of our earlier material to make the tracks
2: all right so do you have any comments specifically about just get it just to, to introduce it before we play it in full for the folks
1: just get it was one we did about three years ago and we did it with donald ross skinner and me and donald were sort of working on some ideas we'd done the outpost album and we'd just following on from that album and we came up with this track and corinne supplied the vocals
2: so it's typically Donald is layering on the guitars on top of a synth atmosphere that you've created, or no?
1: We both worked on both aspects of it. Donald's quite hands-on in the rhythm department as much as me, so it's all we've all both mixed it up together. So it's not like Donald just did bass, or I just did bass, or Donald just did programming. We both kind of just mixed it up in the studio. That's how that came about. But I think I gave Donald the mix credit on, on the track.
2: aren't really chords but there are these two bass notes when we start and then you have this vocal flurry (laughs) the vocal is echoed enough and fluttering around enough that obviously the point can't be just to deliver the message of the lyric that it's a sonic effect just like anything else on there is that kind of in general the role of the vocals to just be like the guitar and be like one of the synth lines or something else
1: I like music when everything's kind of, nothing's necessarily sitting on top and saying, I am the lead. To me, it's, they're like, you're looking at a landscape. So the general field of perception is that the vocal should be able to be seen as an instrument as much as an instrument line could be seen as a, as a vocal line. You know, you can catch a little drift of melody here and there through like a synth line or whatever. It's not to say, that's how I've always approached recording amp. I like the field of view, rather than, hey, I'm just a song, and the instruments are just backing me up.
2: Well, and likewise, the role of the drums, typically that would be the thing that is driving the rhythm, whereas, well, it's such an interesting part here that you've got this main hi-hat thing and then a counter hi-hat thing that comes in. So you've established this. It's not the underlying beat to the thing, but it's by itself a melody. But you know, it's the thing that really jumps out and grabs your ear.
1: We wanted a sort of, you know, a bit of an edgy, sort of baleful type vibe going on. So that's what that does is because sort of creating some sort of syncopation and creating in a sort of like more insistent grab at, at your ears, basically. That's the way I perceived it.
2: Often, techno music is certainly not considered spontaneous music because you've got the quantization or even just looking at the track, the fact that it is marked off according to the time track that you've set up. Is that the way you work where you're still working in a an environment that is digital at its base and you've got the digital heartbeat driving it or is it even multiple drum machines that perhaps are set up to be slightly different or something? How is this actually being set up?
1: Well, try like this one, it's set up on a computer software. I use it, and Donald does certainly when he works with me. We set the uh, door up to be like a traditional tape recorder, so we'll have a click track if we're working with beats. But we'll play in live. We don't do lots of loops and just just loop in the editing. You might do that. You might you know as you would in you know traditional tape editing processes yeah i look at things in that sort of you know i started f- recording with amp on the cassette four track before that with a real to real four track used to record two tracks bounce down mix it everything had to be done live i do like the looseness that you can get i don't like the over quantized approach and don't make music that needs it
2: Although even in your live sets, sometimes you do use programming, right? That at least the performances that you've done into the synth beforehand, or is, am I misrepresenting this?
1: No, no, yeah. Well, we've used programming, but we've also used live musicians playing everything. I think I've toured just me and Corinne, and I had to basically have everything tied down to tape, backing tape and digital sequencer, because it was only me and there's only And Corinne just sang and did a bit of synth. But we've played with live bass and live drums, and then we'd have sampling and sequencing as an augmentation of the live setup. So we'd basically be playing everything as much as we could. Both ways, really, depending on what's been available in terms of personnel and stuff.
2: So if you were doing this song live, say, would you be triggering some of the individual parts, or would the entire backing track potentially if you didn't have a drummer there
1: yeah if it's just me it'd be mostly programming and i'd be playing guitar on top i think and keyboards on top
2: at least you know when the song's gonna end whereas i feel like listening to some of these performances i mean especially the earlier stuff pretty obviously sounded like this is an open jam and we're kind of just following the spirit in terms of how long it's gonna go it just kind of musicians looking at each other and doing that thing of like okay now we're kicking it
1: up and now we're okay maybe we can end here i've always liked that sort of jazz approach to music making so i've always liked in possibly the live versions are always different from the recorded versions and every time we play live it'll be a different version probably not so much when you're on tour you end up playing the same version and just refining it as you're touring and throwing in the odd different thing but i haven't toured for a while and if one are again i'll be playing the stuff up beyond that set list It'd be all new versions. I'd revision it for that moment as best I could. Like the AMM type approach to music, you know, every gig's different.
2: So these two hi hat things at the beginning, still, when they come over and they're playing off each other.
1: If you're playing live, I'd probably be putting elements like that into the yeah. mix. Yeah. Because it's a character of the song, isn't it?
2: Even just in this recording, which is not step programmed, it's <laughs> the individual hi hat things were played on keyboard, right? Yeah. yeah they can be slightly imprecise and that makes it more interesting the way they're playing off each other. If it was really quantized, locked in, those two things, they wouldn't sound like distinctly different things. I think they would just sound like the same drum machine hi-hat sound coming out of two different speakers at slightly different rhythms, but it wouldn't have that same effect that it has, be as jarring.
1: Yeah, yeah. You can't tune that edge on a sequencer. You can just sort of roughly get there, but if you play live, you can find all the edges you want. Which is what makes life interesting, you know, in terms of people playing like guitars and things. If you had everything programmed to a thing, you just end up with degrees of ones and noughts, ultimately.
2: As the song progresses, this hi hat thing, you go a couple times into this spastic 30 second note triplets, this thing.
1: Yeah, that's just uh, playing with a digital delay, isn't it, ultimately?
2: Okay, okay, so that's not you hitting the keys very fast. No, no, no. no. It's something
1: done in post. In post, definitely. The recording process is analog through digital with digital processing. So structurally, because you don't have, you know, here's a verse,
2: here's a chorus, it sort of breathes that you got at 118, after you've had these two hi-hat things playing, you have the full drum part come in which is a some cool offbeat nicely syncopated it's got the dance feel but it's way more syncopated than would be comfortable to dance
1: to let me put it that way it's just electronic isn't it drum programming it's not like sure. it's not nodding it's not saying this has to exist on on the dance floor it's just saying you can listen to this in your living room
2: yes that's kind of what makes techno what distinguishes maybe the way I I would listen to techno from the way that it is actually usually intended because I'm not listening on a dance floor 99.999% of the time. And so the way this breathes, the way that you divide this into sections is you have the drums sort of peter out and then come back a couple seconds later. So that to me sounds like a verse break insofar as there are verses at all in this song. It's not like you can hear a chord changing. It's over the same... Bass note that's being harmonized, and you have these things that are layering it come in here and there.
1: It's more like a dub break, really. When you're doing a dub track, mm. you'd be putting in breaks like that, spacing it out, adding reverb. And I guess that
2: doesn't actually screw up dancing if somebody did want to dance to this. It just, you kind of
1: get to rest for a second. <laughs> if this got played in clubs, it'd be played in a chill out room, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be, they wouldn't play it on the main floor. I've wondered with many of your songs, again, How do you know
2: how long to make it? Like you're, it seems your comfortable stopping point. This this one is five and a half minutes, and this is very much on the short side for a lot of your songs. And it seems like a comfortable thing. Seems about six minutes or seven minutes, sometimes eight minutes, and it's not necessarily that you keep adding more elements. Like it does have a little bit of vocal jamming, especially toward the end of this song but it's mostly the kind of the same elements coming in and out just as again like a, a chill out not necessarily that the song is moving somewhere i mean this one has the very pronounced intro that we were just talking about but other than that like you could kind of take any particular minute from the middle of it and put it by itself and that would still be not the same song but have approximately the same effect or am i insulting the careful growth throughout the song that's that's here how are you looking at how the thing progresses? Is, is a lot of this worked out in the mix in terms of when particular things are going to come in and out and when it seems
1: natural to end? I look at the elements of the tune and I ask the tune how long it wants to be. And the tune ends up being however long it is. I don't necessarily go, if some sort of aspect of the thing wants feels like the flow wants to run for seven minutes, I let it run for seven minutes. It feels right, you know, I put in the brakes when it feels right to put the brakes on. I just listen, I just just go, this element here, if I play it three times in a row, it'll sound really cool together. So I do, and then I'll put another element. Mm -hmm. It's almost like I'm sculpting something. So I'm removing, adding, softening, you know, twisting, adding effects. I'm very visual in the way I look at music, so I see music as a field that creates images for the imagination. So I'm putting these sounds together, hopefully, it fires my imagination, and I hope it fires other people's imagination. Yeah, I saw you were in art school. Do you do all the
2: cover art as well? And
1: Yeah, most of it. Very consistent aesthetic. Oh, thank you. Well, thanks for noticing. I did sleeves for Creation Records for a while as well.
2: Part of the reason why I raised this editing question is because song number two, Les
1: Hombres sous la Lune. How would you say that? I'm not my French. My French isn't very good either. It's Hombres <laughs> sur la Lune. That I heard two different versions of this.
2: The version that's on the final. Again, this is from Q Factors, a mixtape, 2017. You've got a seven minute version on that, but then you've got a version from two years ago that's on SoundCloud that I'll point people at that is a couple minutes longer than that, and it's quite different in many other ways. Like it was definitely the rough draft that, you know, before vocals were even added. The big thing that jumped out is the song we just heard, the first song, the drum riff. Once it finally gets established, you know, minute or so in, that very much defines the song. And in this original version of the song was the lagoon. You also have a drum riff that comes in pretty close to the beginning. You've have you have got some nice syntho, new agey clouds that build up to it. But once it comes in, like that, very much establishes it. whereas in the version we're about to hear, you've put a lot of effects or something on that drum riff so that it almost just sounds like there's some kind of squishy sounds that are going on, and it doesn't actually become clearly itself until quite far into the song. Like the second half of the song, you can hear, okay, that's that same drum riff that was in the previous version, but the fact that you've created that growth so that, again, when it gets introduced, it doesn't sound like the basis of the song. It sounds like just some noises that are going on alongside the synth and the piano.
1: Uh, yeah, it's gone through a mangle the original song. That's the mix that Karin went for, so that's the one we, we went with. The one that's on the SoundCloud is, like, is very much the sketch of the tune. It's, it's almost like a separate tune.
2: Yeah, this one we're about to hear kind of sounds like a sequel to that one. Yep.
1: Yeah, it's like a sister. It's the finished sister. The, that mm-hmm. one has always kind of stopped where it was, and I, we couldn't, I couldn't, satisfactorily refine it beyond where it was, and that's why it was ideal for this mixtape. To do this other track based on the elements and you know all the samples taken from the first one.
2: So, do you have any introductory words again about the content or the approach to this before we we play it?
1: Well, this is just like a romantic trip through silence and solitude that you might find and feel when you're up at three or four in the morning after maybe a bad night, and you look forward to a more hopeful day tomorrow.
2: So eventually, what kind of dominates the initial version was this new-agey piano wandering with then this pulsing string synth thing that's going through it. And that was kind of most of the song besides the aforementioned drum riff. And it just kind of did a lot of the piano jamming on this. This one has a definite beginning to it, this whole minor key thing that wasn't even in the original version, this creepy... I just watched uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo and brought to mind something in that vein when we're starting off here. But then it ends up being this almost like torch song. Again, I wouldn't say torch song because that would imply a vocal that was prominent and standing over and soaring. But in this, it's just an angelic part of the texture.
1: The way I like to see it is the idea is that it is a journey from one mood into another mood. And that was part of the motivation for doing it, to sort of create that sonic drift. So I'm quite happy that you think it's a sort of, you know, kind of messed up, fucked up torch song at the end. I've managed to translate that idea, so you've picked that one up. So the part of
2: this and some of your other work that I most kind of understand in that I can kind of do it is the piano jamming that is not, you know, it's just a f- couple notes at a time. Like it's very exactly the kind of thing that I recall as a teenager playing at three in the morning. If I could get away with that in whatever environment I was in, but then what you do to overlay that, this, what I was calling the pulsing synth part that you do in so
1: many of your songs. Can you say a little in general about how? You're shaping these. I'm starting with all the pulsing synths and sonic Ah. heavy elements. The pianos are coming in on top.
2: Well, and that doesn't surprise me because so many of your songs are just the pulsing synth sounds that then take 45 minutes to to develop them sound.
1: There are some tunes that do start with piano, but when you, Ah. when it's something sort of so minimal, like in this one, it's very much starting with sort of more sort of heavy-duty elements. Pianos are kind of offsetting that heaviness, yeah. you know, the, the sort of edgy rumbles and dark tones. That's why they're sparse in a sense, because they're like accents, bells, tinkles, tinkling on the piano just to make it a bit more lighter. Could use cymbals, I guess.
2: Well, so say something about how this synth strings, that's a terrible way of putting it, because that implies... You know, I'm sitting in front of a Casio CZ5000 that has a synth string sound. This implies a synth that you're turning the knobs while you're playing it, right? That's kind of what just turning the, the tone. Or is, is a lot of this again done in post when you're changing the tone as it goes?
1: I tend to find a sound I like and I'll work with it. Don't go overboard on tweaking while I'm playing.
2: Okay, so it's just a matter of picking sounds that are de-emphasize what you would traditionally hear. Like even though this has something attuned to strings, it's not like you have a string quartet playing and you hear lots of attacks and you hear lots of definite notes. Like it's more just this, whether it's the wash and reverb or I'm not sure what gives it this quality that it's not entirely clear when new notes are exactly starting, that you've got just a very slow attack time.
1: Yeah, and I'm using reverb and stuff, so I'm sort of softening off all the edges. I'm looking for sounds I'm hearing in my head, ultimately, and so I will do whatever I can to realize that. And if I had a string quartet to work with, I'd get them to do it, but because I don't have a string quartet, I use software synths and what have you.
2: And then you can jump around you know, between three different octave. just the way that this thing pulses that sometimes it's now there's a the higher note is springing out and now it's a very section. you know it, you couldn't get this jet out of a quartet at all anyway
1: you could if you then did the post-production on the recording so in, oh, the, mix, sure. in the mix process i'm using stuff and pushing the sound because that's the nature of the whole record in a sense is that these are all kind of mixes and where the sound has been pushed and hence the title of the album in a sense, because that's what cue is, isn't it, in audio tuning frequencies or shifting the frequency, attenuation.
2: So how are you thinking about pitch when you're doing this synth jam here? Are you, just like when you're jamming on the piano, if you find this cool sound and you drench it with reverb, is it more or less an improvisation for the initial pass, or are you doing a little bit and then adding a little more?
1: It's structured around an idea of a tune, and then it's sculpted from the, the idea of the tune. So there is a melody line in there, and the tune is constructed from that. And it's just creating harmonies and then shifting the harmonies. On this one, I'm basically changing pitch, doing key changes throughout the whole section. So it's moving from one key into another key, and then into another key, and then finally into the, third, to the final section. So I'm going from basically minor, depressing music to kind of atonal structure. That's why hopefully sort of seamlessly moves through to a sort of to a more major tone. So I think this is
2: the transition point
1: That's a transition to the final section. That's constructed and emphasized with a sweep on a virtual synth. So
2: that's what I was thinking, that was a knob turning, but you just get a sound that has the sweep in it, that you press it in it, like that's what the sound does.
1: I oh. played the sweep. The tune had the key change, if you know what I mean. So I'm playing one set of notes, and then changing key, so it goes do, do you know what I mean? I suddenly swap, and they use a sweep with that, to sort of glissando to the new key to make it more smoother. That's how I constructed that little section you played there. So you had the sort of the synths playing the washed out melody and then changing key. And if you'd left that just like that, it'd feel slightly disjunctive because of the key change. But then you add in a, a sweeping synth line using it as a emulation of an VCS three, you know, the classic EMS. PCS three, yeah, this one, and using that, playing a note, sweeping it from the one key to the next key, playing on top. It's just a sort of helping the tune along.
2: So we had a similar transition much earlier in the song that sounded like a foreign sound that nevertheless fits very well. But it almost sounds like a guitar here. Let me just. This is about a minute and ten seconds in. Then you emerge on top with the yes. nice piano line, but that you've got again—that actually was
1: guitar. That is guitar. There's a guitar line. Oh. There's two guitar parts in this tune. One runs all pretty much all the way along, and one comes in halfway through. Ah. But you say the way I the way I construct the tunes is so, you know I, I do it so it's like I want as you notice with the vocals I don't want everything nothing to sort of stand out too much so. Everything kind of can mix together. I'm creating a wall of sound.
2: I was listening to this earlier today and my son was in the room doing some other stuff and I kept pulling my headphones away from my head to determine... Whether some of these little noises that we're hearing were him fiddling around with things. Like, no, that's actually in the song. Yeah. There's a whole environment there. It's kind of stuff that if you're trying for a pristine, you know, studio sound, you would clean that out. But no, you're intentionally setting up this atmosphere to make it indistinct exactly how much stuff is going on.
1: Yes, exactly. I don't care for necessarily the conventionality of mixing that way. I'm much more interested in creating an, an effect in a sense that it's sort of a space in which you can sit in and you can think wherever you like about what you're hearing. And one day you might hear different things to another day. And to me, that would be magical if, if that's the re- response you got, because it should be kind of itself and being alive. The music should just exist as itself. You can try and pick it apart and say, oh, I can hear this and I can hear that. That's kind of ultimately immaterial. It's what it is as in of itself. To me is what really counts. Well,
2: let's talk then about how the vocals fit in there, because it's got this melody that's it's kind of slow phrases in sets of two, so that it it's not totally clear when the next verse is, but it's definitely sort of by stanza. So it's like an epic
1: poem or a Gregorian chant. And it's a kind of romanticesque, you know, in sort mm-hmm. of French, you know, Rousseau-esque style of poetry, Baudelaire-type stuff.
2: Yeah, that you could just repeat it as many times as the music calls for, that it doesn't... Were you writing lyrics to fit the space, or did you have lyrics beforehand, this poem, and then set them in there?
1: I wrote the poem to the music. The music gave me the idea of the poem. The the idea of the title of the, the tune, the original title, and this title... Also gave me, you know, the sort of words in a sense. So it's an evolutionary process. So I didn't come to this with those words. That piece of music, the way it got mixed as you hear it there, suggested those words.
2: And if you don't mind, I'll read a couple because I don't think, I certainly couldn't tell almost ever what was being said in here which seems like you think a lot about these the lyrics they're thoughtfully written but at the same time they're not meant to be i don't know do you put them in the liner notes (laughs) do you care about them as a standalone thing to present to the audience or really no this is really just to serve the song as a whole and if you can't really understand what's being said then well maybe subliminally it's supporting what (laughs) what what is what is your thought here
1: I mean, either way is, is fine. I mean, I can hear the word, but I suppose I would, wouldn't I, because I kind of wrote them. I haven't got a problem about putting words into line those, but on this release, I haven't got any space to put them in, so I haven't. I've left them out.
2: And there's quite a lot of distinct lines. Like, you know, there are some places where it starts to repeat the same, but like, they across my eyes, across my eyes, my eyes. And so it does that kind of at the end of each section here, I see. But for the most part, it's just, you know, a long, in the silence I feel your dark embrace, closing round, shawl woven... In the night, lost shadows, lead me to a moonlit pool, forgetfulness sweet, upon your dreams, linger. And there's sort of three more of those things about that length. Of course, each of those lines that I was saying so fast is a full, what, five seconds long, like is stretched out. Yeah, yeah. I got that same feeling when I listen to a lot of slow jazz, especially, you know, in jazz, so many times these old songs were just done by so many different artists and they were standard. And so you kind of already know how the song goes. And so if Ella Fitzgerald or somebody stretches like <laughs> you still know what the song is and it's just kind of an artistic way of doing it. When you do that with, you know, original lyrics like this, it's a similar kind of effect, although of course you're you're not, you know, familiar with it beforehand.
1: Yeah, yeah. I kind of aim to publish all my lyrics at some point. It's all handwritten, so I have to spend the time typing it all up.
2: Oh, no, no, it's better if you just, so what you sent to me, I'll tell the audience, is you took a picture with your phone of the paper and attached that, and I think that works best. I don't know, I've seen other lyric sheets where perhaps they're just picking a font that looks like the person's writing or something, but I know I've definitely seen some Robin Hitchcock albums and things where like, I know his handwriting because he uses it all over the place. So having the... Handwritten lyrics, even though it would be forty pages long.
1: I have a book that I put them all in, mostly black. So I've got a small black book that I put them all in. Maybe I just have to scan every page and put it out that way, so you get to see. But it's all and neatly written. It's not scrawled. It's it's very legible.
2: Does that mean it's your second draft, or this is just the way you write?
1: You don't want the worst nightmare in the world, isn't it? If you write things down and then ten years later you can't read your own handwriting,
2: I've experienced that.
1: Plenty. So to archive it, I've just written all the final draft, the stuff that you know that gets finally used. It's like signed off versions of.
2: I was going to say most of my lyric sheets like that are so many cross outs and (laughs) things. Move this down there,
1: and yeah, exactly. I've got that version as well in scraps of paper, but the final version that gets into goes into this book. What I sent you as JPEGs, I'll copy again into the book.
2: I tend to, in the best of circumstances, write about three more verses than I need. And then hopefully, you know, what's left after the pairing will be good. I'm not often that lucky to be so prolific in ideas when getting stuff down, but hopefully the music evokes, you know, certainly this poem could go on for another three pages with similar, or was there like a definite story through the movement of the lyrics? Like they, they seem, I'm just scanning through them, like, is there a progression?
1: It was the idea of, of starting off black and coming out a bit more hopeful. It's that turning of the day. It's that I wanted to conjure it It's a romantic, literally, of being literal in this, describing it as a romantic poem sort of tune in the sense that I wanted that idea, that that feeling when the day starts. So you've got all the sorrows of yesterday and the hopes of the day to come and to get that across, basically. That's all I was trying to do with it. It uh, seemed like a really nice way to end an album.
2: Is it a glimpse in time, or is it
1: a movement through the
2: four verses here where we start out in the dark, in the dark embrace? At the end, you're still talking about the moon. It's not like the dawn has just come.
1: Well, the moon's still in the sky. You can have the moon in the sky, and the sun is as dawn, you know, you can have both in the sky. The moon is always, often, you know, you're quite often, you've got daytime moons, haven't you, you know? Sure. The moon's not just this dark, it's a very, you know, it's a very friendly object we have called the moon. It has its spooky side, but it also has a daytime side. Do you know what I mean?
2: All right, so you've convinced me this is not just the instruments coming in. There's a definite progression through the song lyrically and, you know, the couple of key changes and, and transitions. Like this is, seems very carefully structured, which again is very ironic considering the initial version, which just starts with that drum thing right at the beginning, has the same kind of string and piano jam, but it really just is more of a jam without necessarily movement anywhere in particular.
1: Exactly, that was very much started off as a jam, the two versions. The other track as well, which you can find on SoundCloud, the one that's, um, it was called Mistral. I don't know if that's on SoundCloud. Yeah,
2: I, I saw that there, or maybe I got that off your website. In any case, I think that's one of the things, if you sign up for your website you get free or whatever but it's in one or both of the places
1: okay yeah so the track push and hold that's on this album started off as that other track so those two are kind of paired in a sense well so let's transition to the third
2: song tomorrow this is from the Stenoret album 1998 similar in some ways it's got a rhythm driven oh at least similar to that initial version of Les Ombres, where you got the drum part out right at the beginning and then a piano chord progression and vocal. Well, this time it's just the same like four lines over and over again. Right. But it has a similar structure in that this verse can happen sort of as many times as you want in the song. And this is a five minute song, but this could again be 10 minutes. Again, it's deceptively song like here. You've got the vocals are high enough in the mix and has a traditional enough techno drum part. It's very idiosyncratic, but it's an interesting, but still it doesn't quite move like a song would it, you would expect?
1: No, definitely not. And that's produced by a guy, Robert Hampson, who doesn't like to do things conventionally either. So we both agreed on that way of approach. And that's very much a piano track constructed on piano as a basically a piano it's around it's just a repeating stanza of notes that 's why it's so minimal it's conceived as this piece of minimal slightly syncopated trippy piano track.
2: So it's basically a four chord progression. There's this kind of simple descending thing. So you're saying that was the thing that drove it initially?
1: Yeah, it's like minimal music. You know, so it's all on the sort of it's on the beats. It's all about the interplay of two or three notes bouncing off each other, going through that progression.
2: But then, of course, what makes it catchy <laughs> is this really cool rhythm loop. That was still you. That wasn't the producer, right?
1: The rhythm loop now is done by a guy called Olivier Gautier. Okay, it was a programmer at the time. So he's doing that. He comes from the techno world. He's a sort of French techno artist.
2: Okay, so that's why it kind of sounds a little more, I don't want to say familiar, but but these little gurgling and beeps and stuff that are in there, that seemed very typical of other things I've heard in your synth parts. So I wouldn't have been surprised had you constructed this.
1: He constructed it, but he's using elements also that I can't remember if he, because he would sample bits of me as well to make stuff. So I okay. can't recall exactly how he came to do that, but he programmed it.
2: Well, so is that the same kind of way you would uh, collaborate with Donald? You said in the first song, Just Get It, was the two of you both working? So is it you're working in your separate studios and you kind of are passing parts
1: back and forth and overlaying things? or how- In the same room. I think me and Donald haven't tried to work in separate rooms. But I have worked with people where we have worked in separate rooms. I've passed stuff over and got stuff back and passed it back again. So it's whatever the circumstances allow and dictate. So that would be kind
2: of what happened here with the rhythm loop. How would you get even get... Is other person involved?
1: I did a demo version of that track, which I did release, I think, uh, which is more more of a folky version of the track. It's on All of Yesterday Tomorrow album, and Olivier would have got that, and he would have got some programming going from that, and then I would have edited it with him.
2: Did it have a different title on that long album? I'm scrolling through it now. I'm not seeing tomorrow.
1: I think it was called Untitled Demo of Tomorrow.
2: I see, okay. In fact, I want to I just hear a little bit of it. We'll put this for the listeners as well. Yeah, yeah, so a good comparison. So there's the syncopated
1: piano.
2: So yeah, very much the, let's techno this
1: up. <laughs> so that's what Olivier was and is and still is. You know what I mean? It's like, when I work with people, like I let the music... Speak for itself. I let the people I work with speak for themselves. I'm not telling them what to do. I'm letting them respond to what I do.
2: Just the fact that you know you've got a song like thing here, and that seemed typical. That in your early '90s albums, mid '90s albums, it's just long. Jams, very atmospheric, but by the time you're getting to the, this Steneret album, and then I guess the two that you sent me, are those right before or right after this? I'm trying to remember now. One is 98, one is, uh.
1: Those two are after, after the Steneret album.
2: Okay. So the Steneret was the first movement in that direction, right? I, I noticed the passé présent. We were on a long car trip and I was playing. Songs from your catalog to my whole family,
1: and they were going mad. I hope <laughs> they're screaming stop or something.
2: The first couple albums, it was like you know, okay, I'll just play the first song off that album, and then we'll hear a different thing. And oh well, this song is going to be 15 minutes. We'll we'll stop it after five minutes. But the Passé Prochain album, the 1997, that was the first one that I was able to play like a whole bunch of songs in a row.
1: No one screamed at you.
2: So that seemed like a transition by the time you get to Steneret here and the, the albums after that, especially the, do you call it the U.S. or us?
1: Well, both, either. Okay. I did a road trip in America and that was written partly as a um, creative response to that, my observations of America. So yeah,
2: U.S. So you have things that are almost pop songs by the time you get to this, the year 2000 and mid, the mid thousands. I mean, was that just the people that you were working with
1: and Corinne the singer, who's the main, the muse and the sort of basically the reason why AMP exists wanted more song material. So having more songs is a, is a response to that request in a sense.
2: Yeah. You have actually singles.
1: I tend to be more drifty and more, if I'm left on my own, I end up with an AMP studio album, which is experimental electronica ambient electronica with noisy bits. So I'm a, bit, I'm a bit wayward. So Corinne ties me down and sometimes ties me down more restrictively in terms of just give me something I can sing. Thank you very much.
2: Well, on this song Tomorrow, you were saying it's minimalist. Is this a much quicker process to develop this kind of song than it is a lot of your other stuff where you're thinking about umpteen layers and and how the texture is gonna shift
1: that one came came out in a day in recording in wales when we were putting the album together there's a collaboration as a result of you know input from the producer olivier had done some programming but you know it's like we honed that and nailed it i think within a day it all fell into place. But while we are recording, it wasn't heavily labored, something that's one of those ones that came together quite quickly.
2: You know, as you progress through it, occasionally the bass gets exposed a little more, gets a little more funky, or you've got a little piano counter melody that gets introduced about three and a half minutes in and then becomes like a significant part of the song Kind of all the elements are very transparent here, very unlike the atmosphere of indistinct number of things going on in our last song here. I know you've continued then to do these amp studio albums at the same time so you could kind of do that more, I don't know if it's experimental, but the, the more strictly atmospheric stuff as opposed to song stuff. I mean, what do, what do you enjoy at this point? What What is kind of making you get up in the morning?
1: Just life gets me up in the morning, but, um. <laughs> okay.
2: I should say makes you plug in your equipment. That's the thing that it's, that slows me down. I don't want to
1: put mics in front of drums again. I spend days having to do admin. It seems that's my main bugbear.
2: Not even technical admin, the actual admin.
1: Actual admin. Yeah. <laughs> not even cleaning up mixes. No, not even playing with stems. It's just working out who to email to get things moving. The real boring stuff of the music industry.
2: Well, I hope I have not contributed to that uh, stack of promotional boredom today.
1: No, no, no. Still, that's the more the fun side. I think is I'm talking about sort of um, fretting about whether I've put the record sleeve together in the right way. I got the final sleeve today, so I'm quite happy today because I finally got to see the sleeves and they look okay. So it's always a big worry that you've made some sort of stupid error. When you've put it together, it's too late because it's already printed. Yes. That's the danger of, of making things to print, isn't it? The finality of it. The next amp album is what's sort of pushing me on at the moment because this key factor is like a kind of closing of the door and the past and allowing me to fully focus on completely fresh material.
2: Yeah. So what is the direction of that?
1: It's going to be me refined, more refined, basically. I've seen a way I can have not my cake and eat it, but so much I can satisfy Corinne with the songs and a sweet melody for her to sing and my taste for atmospheres and textures. I think I can see a way to sort of create a better marriage of the elements.
2: Yeah. So you've got such immense sort of producer chops here creating these layers. I hadn't noticed, have, have you done any other projects kind of backing other musicians? You know, they've got a core thing, a young singer-songwriter that you're kind of doing what you're doing with Corinne, but even maybe more of a paid gig. Are you avoid that kind of thing?
1: I don't avoid it. People can come to me if they want to. I've mainly done a couple of mastering stuff for people. I've not really got into mixing other people's stuff, but that's just because no one's come to me and said, would you like to mix? So if
2: I sent you a guitar and vocal demo and say, synth all over this, like, is that the kind of thing you've ever
1: done for anybody? No, I haven't. If you're offering, I'll give it a go, I'll tell you. Uh, I, I, get- I like playing the sound. If I can see something in what I hear, I'll do it and I'll do my best. I did a mastering, a friend of Donald actually produced an EP and I mastered and I put his records together for him. Did that last couple of weeks ago. I agreed to do it because I could hear something in what he'd done, but it ended up being a bit of a tricky one on the technical point of view because he'd recorded it in very basic situations. So his noisy tracks were full of unwanted or desired frequencies that he hadn't heard because he hadn't had a reasonable studio to mix it in. So as a masterer, that was a bit of a task, but fun, because I managed to get something that was half decent, I think.
2: Well, I guess relatedly, in terms of your tastes, your style of composing is so distinctive that a lot of people who are in that kind of category, it's because they have very specialized tastes, and most of what's on the radio, and most of, you know, it's all... Yeah,
1: no one's going to come to me and ask.
2: Horrible. (laughs) Horrible, corrupted by the spectacle of capitalism and all this stuff, and or do you have very super wide tastes in listening as well?
1: I like anything. I used to say that I don't care what it sounds like, what it is, as long as it sounds good, and as long as there's something in it. There's some things i can't listen to probably the really cheesy sort of novelty pop records and tunes that are stupidly catchy annoy me because i have a problem of getting them out of my head sometimes so I, I try to avoid listening to stuff like that. But I've enjoyed listening from Glenn Campbell to Jesus and Mary Chain and anything in between.
2: I mean, obviously, the top 40 at any given time is probably going to be dreadful. But the concept of a pop song in general does not offend you.
1: No, no. I mean, the thing is, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of the likes of Ed Sheeran and all that sort of thing. I much prefer my folk to be Nick Drake. Sure. Oh, yeah. Stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? I'm open. You know what I mean? It's like the end of the day. I try to be open anyway. It's probably a lie to say I'm open, but I try to be open. I don't hear enough people being different. That's what saddens me about music or, well, culture as, as we live in it today. It's too retro. It's too, there's someone who's made lots of money. Let's just copy him or her. And so dumbing down on the diversity, and that's a bad thing. I think nature says diversity wins. Diversity is king. So we as humans should be, Diverse and celebrate diversity, and we seem to do the opposite. That depresses me.
2: Well, let me give you two options since I was still mulling this over when I was emailing you about what song we should play to close with. So, either we should go with Level Devil, the US version, which would have that Sonic Youth sort of feel, or if we want to do an uncertainties principle thing, we could do at least part of. Morti, which is people might have trouble getting through, it, but it's definitely both of those show off sides of your work that we haven't otherwise talked about. So, which one would you rather leave listeners with?
1: Oh, uh, I think we've stayed on the amped tack, so we should just end with Level Devil. I think
2: it's generally in the in the land of songs, and actually, the production had gotten very tight by this point that it does not sound like you know, a guy in his basement. This sounds like a full-on modern post-rock band. I don't know what you
1: call it now. Well, yeah, well, it was live drumming and all that sort of thing, you know. Always nice to hear real drums being smashed.
2: Any particular words about what that song means or where that came from, anything that we want to...
1: You know, it's about the schizophrenic nature of modern society, ultimately. that's And the, the pull of that good and evil and, you know, the sort of twisted realities that, that people face today that's what level devil is to me all right well thank you so much
2: for doing this i really appreciate it
1: all right no worries thank you
2: All right, thanks so much to Richard. It was a thrill to talk to him and fun to immerse myself in some music that, frankly, often violates a lot of the preconceptions that I have of what music should do, the kind of rules that I use in my own songwriting. But I really got into it. I would recommend that you go immerse yourself in some of his longer pieces. I would like to call your attention to the fact that I was featured on the Dr. Drew podcast. If you look at drdrew.com episode 297, Because a lot of what I talked about with him was sort of my standard aesthetics lecture. I've been given some version of this talk since about 1991. And it's really the ideology that underlies this podcast. And I think Richard's music is a great case study to test that on. Because the point of this theory is that there are vast reservoirs of great work out there that you are probably not plugged into. And if you just heard a little bit out of context, you would not really know what to make of it or think that that's kind of weird or awful or... So I hope this podcast does the job of helping to gently introduce some artists, some songs that you might not think that much of if you were giving them in another context, but that given all this explanation, hearing the artist talk, you kind of get the idea. If you want to find that interview again, I provided a link to it from my Facebook page. So take a look for Nakedly Examined Music on Facebook. The URL, nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, if you go check it out, this podcast finally has its own dedicated web page. It's not just a section of the Partially Examined Life site anymore. Go in there, respond to this episode, respond to the old episodes with comments. Email me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Let me know what you think. Let me know who else you want to hear. Let me know what other styles of music you want to hear, or just say hi. Maybe send me a link to your music if you are a musician. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off.